All right. You know, this is a, did a couple messages on the Holy Spirit a, a couple months back or so. And I decided to do a couple more. It was going to be one more, but uh, this message kind of couldn't get all, get it finished last time. So I thought, you know, I'll just do a part two and expand on it. So I, I made it a little bit, you know, took part two because I didn't want to cram everything in when I, there was a certain part of it that I was looking forward to, I look forward to sharing all the scriptures, you know, but there was a certain section of it that I was like, man, if I go too fast through that, could just go over people's heads or just, you know, in one and out the other. Not that you would receive it that way, but that there was just so much scripture I was sharing and so forth. And I didn't want you to miss these major points because uh, some of the points I want to make right now will really help you out in your walk with the Lord. And we all want to be stronger in the Lord. Amen. And uh, we left off near the end of the last message. I mean, we talked about being sealed by the Holy Spirit at the end. But just prior to that, we talked about how the Holy Spirit helps us crucify the flesh. And we talked about how we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength. And many, many Christians, they go to churches, and they're told, hey, this is what God wants you to do. This is what he doesn't want you to do. And they're not really told, oftentimes, uh, in a lot of places, a lot of them understand, hey, I'm supposed to do this and not do that. But they don't realize that you need to cry out to God in prayer, <laughs> you know, that apart from him, we could do, Jesus said what? Nothing. Nothing. And Paul said, through him, we could do what? Everything. All things, everything, amen. Everything he calls us to. And I've quoted those two scriptures together, you know, over and over again since I was a young pastor and, pri and prior to that because I think those two scriptures go really well together. They show us clearly we can do nothing without them and through him we can do all things. And that has a lot to do with the Christian life and, uh, and the Christian walk. You cannot be a strong Christian. The Bible says with, on your own. The Bible says be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Amen. So you have to rely on the power of of the Holy Spirit to live a victorious Christian life. And that's critical that we understand that. I've said over and over again, you cannot live the Christian life. It's impossible on your own. <laughs> it's got to be by God's grace. And we always talk, and in the church there's such an emphasis on grace, and we emphasize it so much here that we're saved by grace. We constantly talk about the cross and what Jesus did for us and the pictures of the cross and the beauty of the cross and his sacrifice. And we emphasize what he's done for us and the forgiveness that we have in him. But oftentimes uh, what is lacking in the modern church today is an emphasis on the power of his grace when it comes to sanctification and living a life that's filled with power to overcome temptation and sin. And some of the words that I think need more emphasis in the body of Christ right now are words like, for instance, uh, the, the Greek word that we use to trans, that we translate the word repentance, metanoia, amen? Metanoia means to have a change of heart, change of mind. It's the word repentance, a change of heart, change of mind about your sin, about who you're gonna follow in the, in the biblical context and turning away from a life of rebellion to God and turning to Christ. It has to do with a change of heart, change of mind that leads to a, and has a fruit of, the fruit of those actions, a change in your behavior, the change in your behavior is the fruit of repentance. The actual repentance is that decision in the heart, right? But metanoia, I know when I do biblical counseling, guess what a lot of biblical counseling is about? A lot of it is about metanoia. Getting people to repent. Not always, but oftentimes it has to do with getting one. If, you're doing it, if it's with a couple and you're talking to two people, sometimes it's both of them need to repent. Sometimes it's just one. Sometimes there's just a misunderstanding and there's no need for repentance or there's just need for clarification or prayer or what have you. But oftentimes there is repentance involved in metanoia. And metanoia is a New Testament word that is used not just at the beginning of your Christian faith. It's part of the elementary teachings of the Bible, according to Hebrews chapter 6, when it talks about the elementary teachings, the basic teaching, the ABCs of the faith, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, you see. And that's even neglected. A lot of people don't even know the ABCs of the entry level of what it means to become a Christian. But so we need to understand the word metanoia. We need to understand that God wants to, uh, God's spirit helps us to repent. He convicts, uh, the, uh, before we came to Christ, we didn't come to Christ on our own either, did we? Jesus says that what? Nobody can come to me unless the Father what? Unless the Father draws him. If we were not drawn by the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have come to Jesus. Now, of course, we believe, as the scriptures say, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Amen? 
and he draws everyone. Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll, be, he'll, he'll do what? So will the Father that he would what? Draw who? All men to himself. But some don't respond. Okay? If you respond, it's by his grace. Amen? Not by your own works. It's his grace. You're just, your response is, I have nothing in me. No merit in me. Amen? God gives grace to humble, but he resists the proud. You say, God, have mercy on me. But another word is uh, the Greek word that, well, we get the word metamorphosis from it. And it's used a couple times in the scripture. And that word is used in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 3, it talks about how we are transformed by the Holy Spirit from glory to glory. So God transforms us. That, that We can use the English trans, word transforms. So as Christians, we ought to be saved by grace through faith. Amen? But what many Christians do is they talk constantly about how they were saved by grace, you know, saved a wretch like me. They talk about their initial experience in salvation, and then they forget to walk with Jesus. And they just keep looking back at him when they were saved, and then Peter warns that they can even forget that they were saved or washed, he says, from their past sins. So it's critical that we realize as Christians we have an ongoing walk with God, you know. The Bible says Enoch walked with God, and he was what? He was not for God, took him, amen? The Bible says Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. The Bible says be careful how you walk. The Bible says walk in the light as he's in the light and you have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son will cleanse you from all sin, amen? We're supposed to be walking with Jesus. Real Christians don't just say, oh, back at that date, I remember I came up to some altar call and I received Jesus and I'm a Christian, but they're just living like everybody else. True Christianity, and to truly be a Christian, means that you're following Christ. That's why so many people are going to be shocked on Judgment Day, because Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, you know, Lord, Lord, right? He says, I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You did not do the will of the Father. No, they did certain things. They weren't really doing the will of the Father. They hadn't repented, you see. And the word repentance, I mean, if you look at the book of Revelation, you'll see the book, word repentance is used with most of the churches there, telling them to get right with God. Churches? So believers need to hear that word as well. It's not a bad word. It's a beautiful word, metanoia. And it's important that we understand that all of us need one degree or another of metanoia daily. We constantly need to be changed in our hearts and minds to press in to follow Jesus more, amen? And we constantly need to be continually transformed by the Holy Spirit. And last week's message was about the Holy Spirit, our helper, the Holy Spirit. And this is part two of that message. And the point is, is we don't have the strength, as I mentioned, to do it. But we have, God gave us a helper, amen? The paraclete in the Greek, which can be translated counselor, right? Helper. He's given you a helper. If you're a Christian, be encouraged. You have the helper with you. You have the Holy Spirit. That is God who made you. And at the end of that message... So I mentioned the end of that message, you know, the end of it, but I never really got into it. Uh, I went through some scriptures like Galatians 5.24. It says, all those who belong to Christ, if you really belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its affections and desires. Wow. The flesh, our old man, our old Adam, who we were before we knew Jesus, that rebellious aspect of us that wanted to be our own God and do our own thing and make everything revolve around us and spin everything around us like saucers, which you'll never keep those saucers in the air. You'll never get those saucers in the air. You're not God. But that part of us, that old man that just put ourselves first and before everyone and everything, before we knew Jesus, it says those affections, those desires have been put to death if you're a Christian. Because all those who belong to Christ, everyone who belongs to Christ, Right, has crucified the flesh with his affections and desires. And I want to talk a little bit to, to, in this message about what it means to crucify the flesh. Because there's a, going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day where they never even began to crucify the flesh, but they claim to be Christians. They're filled with their own will. There's many people that are backslidden. The Bible says in Proverbs, or sorry, Jeremiah chapter 2, I believe it is, that the backslider is filled with his own ways. So you can know whether you're following. You're doing, are you filled with God's ways? Are you walking and following Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Are you following his way? Or are you doing your own thing? And you're filled with your own ways. You know, Christianity in the early church was called the way. 
Second Peter warns about those who have forsaken the way of righteousness. Christianity is also called the way of righteousness because we get right with God through faith in Christ who cleanses us, amen? And then he shows us how to walk and how to live the Christian life. But to become a Christian, you deal with sin. Because in John 16, verses 8 through 11, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does with the world, the non-believer, to you and me before we were believers, is he convicts what? The world of sin. He showed us our sin. He showed us that we were in rebellion to God. If you've truly come to Christ, there was a point of awareness in your life where you realize, man, I'm not a good person. In fact, I've sinned against God. I've blown it big time. And I'm in severe trouble with him. And I'm under his judgment. And the Bible says, the point of man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. Then you realize that you need to put your faith in Christ to be saved. You need to repent. Metanoia, change of heart, change of mind. Leaving that life of rebellion and turning your heart to Jesus. Amen? If you turn on your heart to your heart, in your heart to Jesus, metanoia, you're no longer on that broad road that Jesus had leads to destruction. You're now following him. Amen? Who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now you're going a different direction. You're following Christ. Okay? And I know a lot of times we get pretty deep in this fellowship, but I need to get back to basics a lot of times. You know? Even the best baseball players, you guys that are in MLB, all of a sudden some of the best baseball players, they'll go into a slump. And all of a sudden they can't even hit the ball. It's like, man, that guy's the best. What happened to that guy? He was the best hitter in the league or one of the, and all of a sudden he's dropping his elbow or something, you know, or his hips aren't straight or he's not moving his hips or whatever, you know. He's stepping wrong or whatever. And they'll just say, hey, your foundation's off or the basics. And then all of a sudden he's hitting again. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we understand the basics of the fact. And a lot of, like I said, a lot of people don't even know the ABCs, metanoia, right? When, When he says these are the elementary things of the faith, Hebrews 6, he mentions metanoia. But a lot of people write, oh yeah, I remember repentance. Yeah, I repent, I came to Jesus. Then they forget transformation, sanctification. God's changed me. I'm living for Jesus. I'm becoming more like Christ now, amen? Or they don't pay attention to the prophetic word and see what the world's about, where it's going, and they can fall into deceptions. They don't have discernment. There's all kinds of things. People get all mixed up today. So it's important to be in the word, amen? And now, when you become a Christian, though, you're convicted of your sin, and you come, again, you come across Jesus' claims. And you see that, wow, I was against him. And you see, wow. And then guess what else you see? You see Jesus' call to follow him. You make a decision if you're going to truly follow him or not. He says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must what? Do you remember? Three things he mentions. Pick up his cross. That's one. Deny himself and follow me. He must pick up his cross. That's crucifixion, self-crucifixion. And he must deny himself and follow Christ. You put those together, you get a pretty clear picture. I mean, what does it mean to be crucified? It means to deny yourself and say, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? And it means to say, I'm going to put you first, Jesus, and I'm going to follow you and follow me. And by the way, how often does he say we Christians are to do that? Because we, we said three things, but we skipped a word. How often? Daily, man. It's a daily thing to be a Christian. Amen? So we need to have this daily walk with Jesus. So that scripture, now I want you in your mind to understand and put it with Galatians 5.24. Remember Galatians 5.24? Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his affections and desires. When? When they came to Christ. If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross. Deny himself. Anyone be my disciple? Deny himself and follow me. That means when you became a Christian, you said, I'm no longer living to get drunk. I'm no longer living to have sexual, live in sexual promiscuity and, and have sex with whoever or, you know, whatever. I'm no longer living uh, to just party and get stoned and do drugs and do meth and smoke pot and drop LSD and, and you know, snort coke, do crack, whatever. You're like, no, I'm living for him now. I'm no longer living, watching perverse things that grieve God's spirit. So all of a sudden you do this 180 in your life. But you don't do it in your own power. Because did you come to Christ on your own? We've already settled that. No, nobody can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father what? Draws him. Amen. Just as you didn't come on your own, you can't follow on your own. Amen. 
It's his grace that gets you through your trials. Remember Paul had that thorn in the flesh and man, it was just so painful. You ever step on a really sharp, very dense, hard sticker? Not talking about those little pansy stickers got all like a thousand little tiny little prickle things on it and they just barely hurt. I'm talking about the ones that just got that sharp kind of, you know. I mean, I don't think any of us stepped on a crown of thorns like Jesus wore, right? But those stickers really hurt. Well, Paul had, he described this thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that the Lord would take it, remember? The Lord didn't take it from him. He said, Paul, my what? My grace is what? Sufficient for you. We have to rely on God's grace, all of us, because we'll go through things that we, that God won't oftentimes take away. And sometimes he takes things away, but we live in a fallen world. He always answers prayer, right? He's never late, right? And his answer is always yes, no, or what? Or wait, amen? How many of you seen some of his yeses? Praise God. How many of you seen some of his no's? Praise God. Praise God, because the no's mean he loves us and he knows better than we do. Because he says that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, declares the Lord. And as high as the heavens are from the earth, so his uh, ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55. So we have this amazing God who knows. And, and praise God, guess what? Some of you are like, well, he said no right now, but it's maybe wait on some things, right? But one thing he doesn't want you to wait on is repenting. Because he will not repent for you. Okay? And true Christians are different. I know that because my, my Bible, your Bible says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he is a what? You guys know the verse. New creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's true in every Christian life to one degree or another. Now, when you're newer in the Lord, it's, the steps are incremental, you know? Okay, I'm following Jesus. I'm following the Lord. I'm on the way. Who, I'm following him in his way of truth and life. But they're incremental steps. They're they're. they're they're new steps. They're baby steps. But you keep going and you keep growing. Amen? And that's the exciting thing about it. And sometimes we don't see the growth, our own growth even, as much as others. And then we run into people like, man, you're different. Or even your own kids. How many of you have kids and all of a sudden a friend hasn't seen them for six months? They're like, wow, they're big now. You're like, they are? You know? So there, God does these radical changes in us. But I'm emphasizing these things because... The Holy Spirit's the one that gives us strength. And one of the verses I mentioned near the end of that message was Romans 8, 12, and 13. Brethren, we're not debtors to the flesh, Paul says, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit, some of the Holy Spirit, crucify or mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you shall what? Live. And he goes on to say, as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the children of God. Very next verse. So he's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about spiritual sonship. And those who crucify the flesh, they do it by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In that same chapter, Paul says something really remarkable. A lot like what he says to the church of Ephesus. And this is something you can bank on. He says in Romans 8 and also in Ephesians, that the same power with which the Lord raised Jesus from the dead is the same power with which he, the Holy Spirit, empowers us to live a godly life. He gives life to our mortal bodies, amen? And that's the same power that he's gonna exert at our resurrection. But he's letting us know that it's not just saying no to the flesh and yes to Jesus. It's by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, the paraclete with you, encouraging you, helping you, strengthening you to live that Christian life. So it's a very, very important message. Now, go to Philippians chapter 2. Well, you know what? Since I mentioned Galatians, go to Galatians chapter 3. I wrote this scripture, I think, when I was driving here. Because I thought, you know what? I never finish my message. Even when I'm done with my message, a lot of times I add a couple of scriptures that came to my mind during the message that I want there for the future if I ever pick it up. But they tend to throw them away, so have them all typed in my computer, but I don't always have those scriptures around. Like, where did I write that? Galatians chapter three, verse one. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He is giving them a heavy question because you see this church at Galatia, they had become Christians, followers of Christ. They recognized that Jesus had died for them. They were saved by his grace through faith. But this group of people came in 
called Judaizers. And these Judaizers were Jews who were professing Christians. And keep in mind, the whole early church was Jewish, right? But these were those who were trying to keep the law of Moses still. You know, let's try to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision, the holidays, everything. You've got to do that if you're really going to be a Christian. And, and guess what? They came in and they were getting some ground. They were making some headway. Like he says, who has bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you? Because in Galatians chapter 1, you remember the verses, he says, I marvel that you're so quickly removed from him who's called you from into the grace of Christ to another gospel. Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. Then he says what? But he warns them. He says, but if we or even an angel from heaven preaches another gospel to you that and that which we preach to you, let it be accursed, eternally condemned. One translation says, go to hell, actually. The Greek word's anathema, means cursed. And because guess what? If someone comes in here and says, man, I know Pastor Joe and the church here teaches that you're saved by grace through faith, you know. But really, you want to really be right with God and really have a great walk with God. You need to keep these seven promises too. And we got this promise keepers meeting over here, man. And if you keep these seven promises, man, that'll really help you on the road to sanctification. I remember that movie. That was big. We were like one of the few churches not going to it. I'm like, uh-uh. We we're promising. You know what some of the promises were? To love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't make that promise. You know why? Because if I could promise to do that and do that, I wouldn't need Jesus. Do you understand that? Some of these deceptions are subtle. And by the way, I looked at the leader of that movement. It was McCarthy of the Colorado Buffaloes, who were a championship team right when this thing had started, got, was kind of the spearhead of the movement, but he had a prophet from the vineyard that was his pastor who was having all these really, really bizarre prophecies. And I had read one of his books prior to this. I'm like, ah, oh, this guy is scary already, man. He had hippo in the garden with a big hippopotamus in God's garden, smashing everything. It was on the cover of the book. I'm like, that's not a good picture. You've got this unclean animal in God's garden here. And he claimed to be a prophet, you know. And then I was looking at more of his stuff, and he claimed that, you know, uh, he was looking at, you know, how can the church have power today in these days, you know? And he said, God showed me a dream, this big, giant stage. And all of a sudden, there was a big, you know, uh, this was years ago when I exposed this movement. And, uh, and uh, he said, I went on the stage and everybody was gone and I went behind the curtain and it said Beatle Power Amp. And he said that God showed me the same power he gave to the Beatles in the 60s. He's going to give to the church. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the Lord guy, you know. And then he said he saw these Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band uniforms coming down on Christians, you know, giving them power. I'm like, ooh, has he seen our video? They sold their souls for rock and roll. He needs to check that out. Because he's here, he's from the wrong spirit. And I'm telling you what, there is a different spirit in the church today, guys. That's why when people have these weird visions and everything else, sometimes God will speak, obviously. He'll, he'll speak, to, he can speak to you through a dream. He can speak to you through a vision. But you know what? The Bible says that no prophecy is of private, what? Interpretation. We always need to make sure everything that you claim that you think or you might think that God may have given you, it lines up with Scripture, amen? Because you could have just simply eaten too much pizza, or you simply could, uh, Ecclesiastes, it says, much busyness causes dreams. You could just be busy. Or it could be demonic. You have to test everything. Amen? And make sure it's from the Lord. So when someone comes up here and they say, I had this dream or I had this vision, or you hear anywhere, just right away, first of all, you say, this could be true or could, not, could be not. I mean, the person could be very sincere, but it may not be from God. Okay? And it, if it ever departs from God's word, you know, that's not from God. Because... The Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. And the Bible tells us that the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So it's interesting. In Galatians, he says, now keep in mind, this church of Galatia, of course, like any other church, there's people in the church, everybody to one degree or, not, degree or another is struggling with, in their walk with God to one degree or another because we all want to be more like Jesus. If you're humble, you're going to recognize that you're not even close and we're trying to become more like him. So when somebody offers you a helping hand, you know, praise God, but if they offer you a helping hand in the form of a different doctrine, something that's false, then it's very dangerous. So the church at Galatia were following Jesus. They were trusting in him. They were supposed to be relying on his Holy Spirit to be sanctified. But they came in with this carrot and said, hey, you guys want to be holy? Of course you guys should be more holy than you are. Oh yeah, who doesn't want to be more holy? Well, if you want to be holy and really please God, you have to keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Jewish calendar the feast days and all those things. And Paul's really concerned because look at chapter four, verse nine. 
He says in chapter 4, verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe what? Days and months and seasons and years. You're going back to, you know, Judaism. It's not Jesus plus Judaism. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. He set us free, guys, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, eventually when we're glorified with him, and from the penalty of sin. Amen. He's already saved us from the penalty of sin. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to bondage. Don't go back to being enslaved. Verse 2, behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be what? Of no benefit to you. If you're like, man, that's right, these Judaizers, man. They told me, man, I can keep these seven promises, or they told me I can do this and this and this, and I'm going to also be holy. And he says, Christ will be of no benefit to you if you go back to the law. And by the way, not everybody that was getting in promise keepers involved in that. I'm not saying everybody was like, you know, trying to keep the law to be right with God. I think a lot of people just had great intentions, but they didn't realize and look at the fine print. This is your promising that you are going to keep love God your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. My intent every day is to wake up and keep love God my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I'm never going to be able to say a promise. I promise that I will. Because <laughs> Jesus died because I can't. And I won't be able to do it perfectly, but I'm going to strive to every day. But I won't be able to do it perfectly until I have a new body. Amen? By the way, Jesus said, don't promise. He said, don't go beyond yes or no. Anything beyond yes or no, he said, is of the evil one. Woo, that's pretty scary. So in chapter uh, 5, verse 3, he says, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to what? Keep the whole law. Meaning, so the, the Judaizers apparently were saying, you got to do this, this, and this, and this. Christ plus keep all these Old Testament laws. But they didn't probably say all, you know, 613 of them. Just some of them, maybe. And Paul said, you know, you want to sign up for that? Paul came out of that. Remember, Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was, he was totally kosher. He, was, he says he was a circumcised the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. Amen. And he's saying that's not the way of salvation. We have a new covenant. The Bible in the Old Testament covenant promises a new covenant. We're in the new covenant, right? And he says you have to keep the whole law, the whole enchilada. In chapter 3, he says anyone who breaks one part of the law is under a curse. So if you're trying to be right with God through keeping the Old Testament law, guess what? You're under a curse because just breaking one of, that law, one of those laws brings the hammer of the whole law down on you. But look at verse 4. For those who have been set free in Christ, but then they go back to the law and they become enslaved again, he says in verse 4, you have been severed, cut off. The Greek word means abolished, so it's kind of hard to translate. I've looked it up and studied it. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So you can fall from grace if you go back to the law. Martin Luther said he used the illustration of a ship of grace and people being upon that ship and that they're, they're saved by grace unless they go overboard, you know, and then they're worse off than before they were saved, he says. Now it's interesting because uh, go back now to Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Look what he says in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by, work, by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What do you think their answer is going to be? He's making them think how they began their race, how they first when they entered into the race of the Christian faith, when they were first saved by grace, he's saying, the only thing I wanted to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, were you being getting circumcised and doing all these things and then all of a sudden you received the Holy Spirit because you did all these things to earn the Holy Spirit in your life? Or is it because you were trusting Jesus, man, in faith and recognize salvation comes by grace through faith and you put your trust in him? And they're going to realize, yeah, you know what? It's when I put my trust in Jesus that my life changed and the Holy Spirit showed up in my life. Yeah, that's right. He's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get them to think, hey, how did you start your race? And what happens to a lot of Christians, they start well, right? Chapter five, he's saying, stand fast in the freedom where with Christ has set you free and don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. I mean, you're doing good. Most of them were, but he addresses any of those who were seeking to be just by, by law. Cut off, fallen from grace, warning. Now, it's important to understand this. Many, many Christians start well, man. 
Then all of a sudden the Mormons come to their door. Hey, yeah, you know what? Jesus died for everybody. You know, we all get in, but you know what? To get to the celestial kingdom, there's three heavens. You have to do the Mormon thing, man. You have to tithe for a year straight just to get in the temple. And you have to get temple recommend. And then, now they're not going to say that right at the door. I'm just telling you right now. They're not going to tell you that. But I'm just saying, in essence, when you become a Mormon, you realize that you have to tithe for a year even to get in the temple. You have to go through temple ceremonies to get to the highest heaven and be with the Father, which is not the real Father of the Bible. Because they believe he's one of many, many gods, right? And the God of the Bible says, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Amen. Amen. Now, or the Jehovah's Witness knocks on the door. Hey, and you may have begun well. Well, I was a new Christian, man. I didn't know any Christians. I was the only Christian I knew. Jehovah's Witness knocked on my door. Mormons are knocking on my door. I'm sitting with both groups, by the way. It made me learn my Bible because I was constantly seeing where they were Aaron, I had no books. I just was reading the Word of God. It's all I needed, man. And I was seeing, wow, they're off on a lot of things because I was immersed in the Scripture. And that's what FBI agents teach the best, you know, bankers learn it even without FBI agents, but they turn, you learn, you look at the $100 bill and you look at all the watermarks and everything else and there's a lot of little marks on there and you know what it looks like. And so you hold on up to the light, you see the counterfeit because you know the original article, amen? And we need to know, our, know the word. And these guys started well, but the Joe Witnesses, man, guess what, man? You got to go door to door. Now, praise God as Christians. I'll, you know, a lot of Joe Witnesses will say to Christians, well, do you ever go door to door? And most Christians will say no, and they make you feel bad. Well, you're really a Christian, you know? Well, or do you go witness? Do you ever share Jesus? Or they don't say Jesus. They'll say, you know, their the gospel, the kingdom, they'll call it, you know. But like when they, they say, even when I was a young guy, and they say, you ever go door to door? I'm like, oh, of course, <laughs> you know? Because I like to witness, you know? But we should all, it's, and it, that's one of those things that Dr. Walter Martin used to say, you know, uh, on the Bible Answer Man. He said, well, you do for the truth what the, what the cults do for a lie. But these guys are out there promoting all these works righteousness. You have to do their thing. As Christians, we're saved by grace through faith. And we don't do things to be, get saved, amen? We do things because we are saved, amen? But if we're truly saved, we will have fruit in our lives. And that needs to be emphasized. That's why James chapter 2 warns faith without works is dead, right? That's why Paul talks in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Holy Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh, that's why Jesus talked about many saying, Lord, Lord, because he wants to make sure you're sincere in your heart and that you're trusting him, amen? But look at verse two again. This is the only thing I want to know from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit from, or the Spirit, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Look at verse three, it's powerful. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Many, many professing Christians are seeking to be perfected by the flesh. You know how I know that? Because there's thousands of self-help books written that I, Christians, in the Christian, professing Christian market, that have nothing to do with the power of the Holy Spirit, that have nothing to do with the gospel. Oh, some of them mention God or higher power, but they want to put you on this trip where you're following some philosophy, some ideology that, that contradicts Scripture. And many Christians get their eyes off of Jesus. And it's very, very dangerous. We have everything we need in Jesus, amen? You guys, do you realize what we have in him? You know, he is the wisdom of God, amen? He is our righteousness. He's our salvation. He's the Alpha and the Omega, amen? The Almighty God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he's, he's our all in all. He's the head and we're the body and we derive our power and our wisdom and our strength all from him. Look to him, be Christ-centered, First and foremost, be a man and a woman of one book first. Amen? Above all else. Amen? Now, there's a huge key to having power to overcome sin in our lives. And a lot of it is looking to Jesus and becoming like Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit puts our eyes on Jesus. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself, but will glorify me. Amen? That's why even when I teach on the Holy Spirit, because the Bible does teach on who he is, but you, when you start saying the Holy Spirit, you realize his whole ministry is to glorify the Father and the Son. Now, go to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. 
couple books to your right, if you're still in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. See, he's getting into sanctification here because the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God, the whole heart, soul, strength, mind. Amen? The second is like unto it, Jesus said, the second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. And as we're becoming more like Christ, we should be becoming less and less selfish. Amen? More and more other-orientated, God first, but also uh, loving the brethren, as he says in Galatians, and loving the lost. And he says, don't just look out for your own personal interests. And how many of you, come on, how many of you, when you wake up in the morning, you're thinking of yourself and what you're going to do. And of course, you've got to think of yourself, I've got to put my shoes on, I've got to brush my teeth, got to whatever, get shower, whatever you're going to do, got to go to work. Of course, you've got to think of what you're going to do. But do you go through your whole day never thinking of anybody else but just yourself? Guess what? You've got to be careful of that because I remember when I did a message... Uh, I've done a number of messages on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I remember during COVID, I just focused on the word our, you know. In our English translation, it's the first word, right? Our, you know. I, I mentioned this earlier, but I just want to really emphasize it one more time. And I just look at this whole prayer gets us started on the Father, right? And our brothers and sisters, our Father. And in the Greek, it's Peter, and then it's our. It's Father, our. Father, that's first. I wish they just translate. I know it would be awkward English translation. I just wish they'd do it. Father, our, you know, because he's first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In that prayer, you're praying thy kingdom come too, by the way. So, but then our, meaning not just me, us, amen, our. I had a whole message on how God wants us not to just pray for ourselves, but each other. Paul said, pray for all the saints. And I encourage you to make sure you're doing that. When you go to bed at night, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for others. When you wake up, pray for others. Pray for your, your family. But don't just pray for your family because Jesus says, what better are you than others? Because the pagans care for their own families, right? But he said, love your enemies. So pray for the lost. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? So the very get-go, Paul is emphasizing getting our eyes off of ourselves, right? In, in verse 4. I don't have time to get the whole context here, but I want to get a little of context before we look at the next verses because look what he does. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. One translation is have the same mindset in yourself that Jesus has. What mindset? What attitude? What attitude did Jesus have that we're supposed to have in ourselves? Well, did Jesus just consider his own interest? It says, though he was rich, he became poor so we could become rich. Look at verse 5 or 6 who although he existed in the form of God. Verse five, who although he existed in the form of God. Who existed? Who's, who's talking about here? Jesus. He exists in the form of God. Remember, God himself says in Isaiah 43, 10, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel. I'm sorry. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, that I am the first and the last, and beside me there was no God formed. There's only one God, and only one in the form of God, and it's God. Amen. And it says Jesus was in the what? Form of God. So he's God. Amen. Well, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. He could have just stayed in heaven, right? He could have said, I'm not going to go die for them. God could have said, I'm, never, I'm not going to create them in the first place. They're going to make a mess. No, he decided to make us and love us before time began. But he emptied himself, verse 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, think about it. It doesn't just say he became a human. That would be a step down enough, right? Sometimes I'll use the analogy of what if you had to become a slug or a cockroach. And I say that's, a, for, that's less of a step than God made because those were both creatures. That slug? In fact, we're called worms in the Bible, Amen. Not a, not a huge difference. I mean, we are made in the image of God, thank God. Amen. But he actually, God, became part of his creation. Amen. But here it says something even more radical. He became a bondservant. The Greek word's doulos. How many of you know the Greek word doulos, right? That's the Greek word for slave. It's a pretty heavy Greek word. In fact, it's interesting uh, because you know the book of Philemon? Paul's writing about Onesimus, the slave, he calls him the doulos. He uses the same word of Onesimus. 
doulos, he's in, he speaks of this doulos, Onesimus. Guess what? He's saying that's what Jesus became. In fact, Tacitus, he's one of the most important Roman historians of the first century. He writes about Jesus and how Jesus existed. You don't just go to your Bible, man. You can look at some of the historians. Josephus, Jewish historian in the first century as well. Tacitus, Roman historian. But you know when Tacitus wanted to mock somebody? You know what he'd say? This Roman historian? He'd say, they have the mind of a slave. It was a total put down. Mind of a doulos. Well, look at what your text says, guys. He emptied himself. Okay? The Greek word for emptied is kenosis. He emptied himself. Taking the form of a bond servant, a doulos, and being made in the likeness of men. Wow. He became like a beggar. No place to lay his head. I didn't say he became a beggar, but he became like one. He became a slave. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we just don't appreciate, I'm sorry, we don't, myself included, often appreciate how radical the scriptures are. Just the language of the cross is like so offensive. Paul says that the cross is an offense to, to, the, to the, those who are perishing. The gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And that word cross, crux, C-R-U-X in Latin. Listen to this. I love this from F.F. F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce is a great scholar in many, many ways. Listen to what he said about the cross. Listen. It is difficult for us after so many Christian centuries during which the cross has been venerated as a sacred symbol to realize the unspeakable horror and disgust that the mention or indeed the very thought of the cross provoked. Talking about in the first century when this was written. By the Jewish law, anyone who was crucified died under the curse of God. In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity not to be uttered in conversation. You wouldn't even use the word. It was a cuss word. Even when a man was being sentenced to death by crucifixion, an archaic formula was used that avoided the pronouncing of this four-letter word, as it was in Latin, crux, C-U-R-X. This utterly vile form of punishment was that which Jesus endured, and by enduring it, he turned that shameful instrument of torture into an object of his followers' proudest boast. Peter Lewis, and I, I thought these quotes reminded me of each other. Look, listen to what Peter Lewis said. In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. I think he might have got that from F.F. Bruce, but the rest is more original. He says, not to be uttered in conversation. It is understandable, therefore, that the style of the hymn becomes abrupt at this point. Many believe that when Paul wrote this, he was quoting a Christian hymn, okay, and that it forever became the word of, part of the word of God. I don't, you can't prove that though. So it could, I believe, I personally lean toward, yeah, it could be him. It became a him after this for sure, but I believe Paul penned it first, but I'd have no proof of that, but I believe that. It's understandable, therefore, that the style of the hymn becomes abrupt at this point. The additional phrase, even death on a cross, being inserted like an ex exclamation point to signal emphasis or astonishment. It took Christ as far beneath his original incarnation as the incarnation was beneath his heavenly glory. In his coming, he made himself a beggar. In his dying, he made himself a curse. That's heavy, man. And that's what God did for us. But now think of this. Now, what does this have to do with the power of the Holy Spirit giving us victory in our lives? Everything. Doesn't seem to, it's like, where did I just go on this tangent all about Jesus and what he did and how he died to himself and everything? No, we're talking about how we're supposed to have the same mindset he had. Amen. Not just look at our own interests, but at the interests of others. Although he existed in the very nature as God, NIV, right? He didn't consider equality with God. He, it says in the NIV, he made himself nothing. I think that's a great, you know, expanded translation there. He made himself nothing. Became a man and died on the cross. So, but he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself as, of his divinity as some falsely teach. He always is God, amen? Otherwise, if he dies for us, who's that dying? If it's not him, you know? It's God becoming a man. And when he's on the earth, he says, before Abraham was, what? 
I am. He's still God, right? So we understand that, right? Now understand this. In the kenosis, though, he emptied himself of all the worship and the praise he was getting to heaven. Amen. Became a man and subjected himself to torture and everything else. And he died on the cross for us. And he's calling us to follow him. And not just... Now, his act of love and, the, and sacrifice was redeeming. We're redeemed through his shed blood. Amen. Now he's calling us to follow his path. Amen. Now we can't redeem people, but we sure can help him by dying to ourselves. We can help other people out. Amen. And, and that's where the joy is, guys. I'm telling you what, I know what it is as a non-Christian to not live for Jesus and live myself. It's depressing life. Okay. I know what it means to live for Jesus and there's a lot of joy in that life. And the more I live for Jesus, the more joyful my life is. Doesn't mean you won't go through trials. But that's where the joy is, man. Jesus says, better to give than to receive. But we don't do it because that's where the joy is. But that is a byproduct of following him. See, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus said, it'll add all these things to you. We don't seek him, so he'll add these things to us. But it's a byproduct, Jesus says. If we do what's right, he's going to take care of us. Amen? So, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you. I'm encouraging you to die to yourself and follow him and love him. But how, what does this have to do with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? How do you think he endured the temptations that took place when he was going to the cross. How do you think he, keep in mind, he's God, but he became a man, and he's, he's, he's all God, but he's also all what? Man. In theology, we call it the hypostatic union. He's God, God and he's man. He's born of, I mean, he's begotten by the Holy Spirit, amen? But he is the descendant of King David, amen? He's flesh. He's God and man. And when he's going to the cross, it's not just as God, but it's as man. As a perfect man. But one who's being tempted in all ways like unto us, it says. Yet without sin. And when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he's fighting temptation not to go to the cross. And it's a real battle. And there's a lot of theology and, and arguments about how is this a battle for him? And I believe at the very least, I believe you cannot say there was not a real battle. He does not have hematidosis without a real battle. He's sweating and there's blood pouring out of his pores. Amen? His capillaries are busting. I've told you before, I was watching years and years ago, didn't know anything about Jesus. It's just a documentary. I think my mom had taped it for me or something when I was younger. And I'm watching, I thought, oh, this is crazy because it was talking about those. And I think Jesus came up in it though. And it was talking about just over 100 people have had their capillaries pop called hematidosis underneath the surface of their skin. And it happens when there's this incredible amount of stress. When you think of the billions of people that have lived, that's very few people. But he went through that. And Luke, who's a doctor, records it. Luke's tripping out because he probably can almost be pretty safe to see, say Luke didn't see that ever before. And he sees it oozing out of his skin. And we read in, it's really intense for him what he's going through and everything there. We read in Hebrews 5, 7, listen to this. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he's going to bear the sins of the world. We read this. In the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, he offered up both prayers and supplications with what? Loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So Jesus in Gethsemane, man, there's loud crying, which makes it even more disturbing that the disciples were still sleeping. You know? And they weren't overcoming the flesh, were they? Jesus says, pray that you don't enter into temptation to them there. Can you not pray one hour with me, he says? Pray that you don't enter temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Jesus had to overcome the temptation of the evil one and his own fatigue, his own temptation not to go forward. Die for these guys? And they're all going to deny me? Who knows what the enemy put in his head? But it's really interesting when you look at this because when you look at what, what goes on here, it's really, really astonishing to me. And I'll tell you why. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And this is where he's praying in Gethsemane. And we read in verse 
39, and he went a little beyond them, that's the disciples, and fell on his face and prayed. He's on his face. This is all intense stuff, guys. And prayed, saying, my father, is it possible, or if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Remember what I told you? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow him? Jesus said to pray this, not my will, but what? Thy will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Here he leads by example. He already had given them that prayer. He knows exactly. Now, he's never praying, praying that part of the prayer where it says, forgive us our sins, because he never sinned. Amen. But he's praying this right here, right? He's praying this, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? It's a little bit of a, a little bite of sarcasm there. Why does he say it that way? Because they were boasting about how they would never deny him. And they're cocksure that he's wrong, or at least Peter was. They were all saying that, we'll never deny you, though. And Jesus says, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows, Peter. And he did, because he wasn't praying. He wasn't relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, keep in mind, he's emptied himself and he's become a man, amen? Now he's still God, but he's also going through this temptation and this trial as a man. And as a man, as a second Adam, he has to overcome the temptation. And it's very real to his humanity. And he has to rely on the Holy Spirit. They aren't going to rely on the Holy Spirit and they're all going to deny him. He needs to go to the cross. They're not bearing his burden. The Bible says to bear one another's burdens, amen? Well, you know in Galatians it says to bear your own burden and it says to bear one another's burdens. What does it mean? Is it a contradiction? No, it says bear your own burden. The word bear, the word burden there is the word we'd use for like a backpack. Something that you can handle. But you bear each other's burdens. That's for just like a huge boulder that you can't handle on your own. You need help with. Amen? That's why we're constantly casting our cares to the Lord. And we need to be part of a body. Amen? And pray for one another. Love one another. Encourage one another. So he says to them, uh, uh, verse 41, Keep watching and praying that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, check this out. Go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This gets really interesting. And verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be what? Very what? Distressed and troubled. Distressed and troubled. Now, not he became a little bit distressed and a little bit troubled. He became very distressed and troubled. That's why we read in Hebrews 5, 7, there was heavy crying. And that's why you guys have been with me for years, many of you. That's why we always do intertextual. We, we, Hebrews 5, 7, there's heavy crying going on. You've got to put scripture with scripture to get the real picture and really appreciate what's going on here. There's heavy stuff going on here. He's got his face in the ground at one point. He's got blood oozing out of his pores because of the, the stress. He's incredibly distressed and troubled. And he's got loud crying, many tears. And he's, he's been forsaken by his friends. And he's going to go to the cross and you're going to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But this term right here, and I just think this is fascinating because I've looked up this word, where this first word in verse 33, he began to be distressed and troubled. The word troubled means trouble. That word distressed, while the word can be translated that way, it's not the best translation. In fact, literally the Greek word means to be greatly astonished, be awestruck. He was like greatly astonished, greatly awestruck. The King James Version says, began to be sore amazed. That's actually a good translation. Usually the NASB, I'll take over the King James, but here, that word does mean, I looked at that word, and it can mean distress, but usually it just means to be awestruck, amazed. What is he awestruck about? What is he amazed about? The enormity of what he's going to go through on the cross. The colossal scale of wrath that he is going to endure in bearing the sins of the world. That has him in loud tears, being forsaken by the Father in some sense and bearing the wrath in the sense that he bears the wrath that we deserve, amen? It's in that way that he was forsaken. He bore the Father's wrath that we deserve. And it's, now, could you imagine bearing your own sins? Can you imagine being thrown in a lake of fire? Can you imagine being in outer darkness forever? Can you imagine having no, being in constant thirst like the, the man who's like, send a drip of water from with Lazarus so he could dip his finger on my tongue. Oh, man. Can you imagine that? 
Well, Jesus on the cross, he's going to thirst, right? Jesus on the cross, it's going to be dark for three hours. Jesus on the cross, he's going to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's going to partake of the wrath, not just for you or me, but for everyone. And somehow he experienced that in ways that we can't even understand. And he is awestruck. He is, um, he is sore amazed in the King James translation. So it's interesting because he's recognizing the magnitude of what he's going to go through. So he's recoiling in a way like, uh-oh. And that's why we read. He goes on to say, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Wow. It's heavy. But you know what? Well, how did he get through it? How did he get through it? Did you know that throughout, he's now, he's, throughout, he, he, he's a man as well, right? How did he get through it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How did he offer himself on the cross? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that when he began his ministry, what happened? I mean, listen to what the scriptures say so you understand the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' life. And he's a model to us as to how we can have victory, amen, and live a victorious life, okay? Give you some examples. When he's prophesied to come, in Isaiah 42, 1, it says, quote, the Bible says, God says, I have put my spirit upon him. Wow. And when did that happen? God was always with him, but the spirit came upon him in power at his baptism, amen? Okay, we also read, that after his baptism, I think this is important, Luke 4.1, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Then he went out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he was victorious, wasn't he? Over those temptations. Three times Satan said, it is written. Three times Jesus wiped him out. Amen. Also, after the temptation uh, in the wilderness, it says he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Amen. Wow. John 3.34 says that the Father gave him the Spirit, quote, without measure, quote, end quote. Wow. Okay. Now, how did he do his miracles? What was he doing? Well, usually, typically, by the Holy Spirit's power. Acts 10.38 says, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Catch that? How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Wow. Well, how in the world did he go to the cross? Because a lot of people think, oh, he was all alone when he went to the cross. Mm. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. I love this, man. I love this. Verse 13 and 14. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Verse four, four, 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, amen, who through the what? Through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your, consciences from, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's beautiful is the emphasis on the blood of Jesus there, but we're not emphasizing his sacrifice as much today as another part of this verse. And praise God. Because if he didn't go to the cross and die for us, we couldn't be saved, amen? amen. So we can have our consciences cleansed by his pure blood that was shed for us on the cross. But how did he offer himself? See, you catch it? How did, he, how did he pull it off? How did he get off his, his face in Gethsemane and go to the cross and offer himself? The Holy amen, Jim. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ to, uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Not talking about his human spirit there, guys. You have a human spirit. We're all spirits, amen, in, in physical bodies. But he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Notice he didn't say his spirit there. Has, it, it says the, and by the way, it's the eternal spirit, Amen emphasizing it's the Holy Spirit that's being spoken of there. He was able to offer himself and overcome these temptations, not only because of who he is, and that's a big part of it, obviously, but because he also had assistance by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we're called, and he, in Romans chapter 12, the Bible says, to, now that's, he says he offered himself through the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit. 
Now we're called in Hebrews or Romans chapter 12. It says, don't be conformed to the world. The world kind of constantly wants you to suck you in and make you in its own wicked image. And this is what it means to be a man or a girl in this day and age. And it's all, you know, twisted, right? We're supposed to be like the Lord who made us. And Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses says, don't be conformed to the world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your minds. Back to being transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then he says, offer up your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. Amen. We're supposed to offer up ourselves, not as a sacrifice for people's sins, because Jesus already did that and we could never do that. Amen. We're supposed to follow his example and we're supposed to offer up ourselves. We're supposed to take up our crosses. How do we do that? By the power of the eternal spirit. Amen. By not sleeping when we should be praying. By not thinking that we could do it in our own strength. Not by making seven promises. Not by going to the Hebrew roots movement and saying, I'm going to keep the Mosaic law and that's going to make me a better Christian. Not by any of those things. But by relying on, by relying on Jesus and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. He wants us to live the Christian life for his glory. And we can only do it by his power and by the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's why we pray. Amen. We pray because we recognize we can't do it on our own. So we say, God, give me strength. Amen. To live the life that you've called me to live. And when you're praying for strength, you're praying for the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you realize that? God's not just like filling out, okay, I'll write this little check to help you out. That's not what's going on. He empowers you by his person and the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus. In fact, it's not just the Holy Spirit that lives in us. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all live in us. Amen. Jesus said he'll send the paraclete and he'll live in us. He's with you, but he'll be in with you. But he also says the Father and myself will make our homes in your heart. Amen. Yeah, the triune Godhead living in you. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. The same eternal spirit which empowered Jesus to offer himself up as a sacrifice amidst all these temptations that Satan threw out him to keep him from the cross is the same spirit that you have to offer up yourself in service to God daily. Amen? So are we going to live the Christian life? Can we live the Christian life on our own? Apart from him we could do? Through him we could do? Amen. Everything. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen. Recognize he's there. He loves you. He cares about you. And he's been patient with you. He knew you'd fall short. God does get grieved, but he's not shocked. He's not like, oh, I can't believe they did that. Oh, no, that's not God. That's us. God knew before you were made that you'd fall short. But he also knows whether you're going to be faithful and get up and continue to follow him or not. And we want to be faithful to the end, amen? And you can't, be faithful to the end without the power of his spirit. So constantly rely on Jesus' blood that was shed for you for forgiveness of sins. Amen? And constantly rely on the power of his Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Amen? And constantly cry out to the Father. Amen? For forgiveness of sins so the blood's applied to you. And constantly pray out to the Father for strength so the power of the Holy Spirit's applied to your life. Amen? You get it? Amen? So you're constantly crying out to the Father for forgiveness. Lord God, have mercy on me. Help me to live this, the Christian life. Forgive me. And he forgives you based on what Jesus did on the cross. And you say, Father, strengthen me now and help me walk the walk. Then the, the power of the Holy Spirit becomes more alive in you. Amen. And as I point out before, you can pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Paul prays that in Ephesians chapter 3. I pointed that out last week. And Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Amen. Well, Paul's praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit for us. Certainly we should be doing that as well. So I love you guys. And uh, I just want this to be a, a spirit-filled fellowship. You know, uh, the Bible says that we have the inspired word of God from the Holy Spirit. So you read his word, amen, sharper than a two-edged sword. When Peter says that no scriptures of, of private or prophecies of private interpretation, he says, but holy men of God moved, spake, spoke as King James spake, as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That same word moved is used, I think it's in Acts 27, of sailboats that Paul's in, a sailboat he's in being moved by the wind. That being moved. The Holy Spirit, that word filled that Paul uses there in Ephesians 5, be filled, it's command of the Holy Spirit. The word filled is a word that's used of a sail, and that was used in the New Testament times, of a sail being filled with, with wind 
that would move that sailboat across the ocean. It couldn't move on its own, amen? And the Greek word for spirit is what? Remember the Greek word? The Old Testament word in the Hebrew is rock. The New Testament word that's used is pneuma. And rock in the Old Testament means wind or spirit. God bless you. And guess what? In the New Testament, the word pneuma can mean wind or spirit. So it's interesting. I love that. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like the wind, right? You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. It's kind of mysterious. He's kind of mysterious in, in his ways. Can't put him in a box. But guess what? We're called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we're like these sailboats that can't do anything in our own power. We can't get to the kingdom shore on our own. But he's already blowing. We just need to pray. And when we pray, we put up our sails. That's what praying does. Praying lifts up the sails and catches the wind with which, and, and just basically says, God, not my will, but your will be done. What are you saying? As soon as you say, not my will, but your will be done, you're basically saying, I want to be in the wake of your love, in the power of your spirit, in the direction that you're blowing and you're going. And guess what? All of a sudden you find out that you have all kinds of power to live the Christian life because that's God's for you and he's, he wants you to be blessed, amen? And he wants you to be victorious. And if he's for us, the Bible says, who can be against us, amen? And that we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, amen? So let's continue to live for him. Let's continue to love him. Let's continue to recognize that we've been changed. We've been redeemed by the blood, but we're living and being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen? Let's live the Christian life by his power, amen? Can we all please rise?